0: Welcome to part 9 of our series on Ephesians, Pray Like Paul. We have gone through chapters 1, 2, and 4. We're going to finish 5 today. We'll hit 6 next week. Eventually we'll get back to 3, which is going to be Kelsey. And we talked about why, but we put 3 at the end. Uh, just to remind ourselves, if you're uh, kind of new to this series, he is writing from prison to people that he loves dearly. Paul Led this church, led this community, eventually handed it off to his protege. Timothy, when you read first and second Timothy, those are the instructions that Paul is sending back to Timothy. They're like, Oh yeah, don't forget. You need to know this, you need to know this, you need to know this. It's it's Paul texting his kids when he's away from the house, going, Don't forget this. And so that's what first and second Timothy are. The Ephesians are a group of people who it could be said did not stick entirely to the plan that Paul had for their life they heard him but they didn't necessarily heed him some of you have struggled with hearing but not heeding they're two different things and the people of Ephesus heard him but long term they didn't necessarily heed him Because later, 30 years later, when John records the book of Revelation, he says that the church of Ephesus that Paul is writing to here about 60 A.D., 30 years later, he says they lost their first love. The story of Ephesians has an epic, tragic, poetic arc to it of people who loved Jesus deeply and then they drifted. Now, you won't find any specific verse that says that, But the church mentioned in Revelation is not like the church written to in Ephesians. It has a different spirit to it. I don't want to waste the lesson that is poured out on the Ephesian church by not heeding it. A passionate, fiery love for Jesus deep in your heart has got to be maintained daily. Your salvation is not fragile. You know, some of you grew up kind of thinking your salvation was fragile and God was dangling you over a fire at all. Your salvation is not that fragile, but your zeal, the flame within you, can go out more quickly than you can imagine. 1861, the Union Army took over a hillside to the west of Washington, D.C. that had been under the conservatorship of Robert E. Lee, which is part of the reason they took it. But they took this hillside that is just west of what is now the Lincoln Memorial. Of course it wasn't the Lincoln Memorial back then. Lincoln had only been the president for about 60 days. But they set up shop there. They set a couple of forts there to defend the city of Washington. They built a freedman's town where blacks who had escaped from the Confederacy and escaped from slavery could live. You know, don't lose the irony there that they're living on land that Robert E. Lee controlled just a a few months before. And about three years later, they buried a private from the Union Army on that hillside. Later, they buried other soldiers, and very quickly the thing became a military cemetery. You know it as Arlington Cemetery. Over 400,000 veterans and family members buried on that 600-acre plot. If you get a chance to go to D.C., don't miss Arlington. It's sobering. People of every rank and file are buried on that ground. From the very lowest of the low to JFK is buried at Arlington. JFK's grave is marked by something that they call an eternal flame. How many of you have seen this? A few of you? Okay, okay. Just basically a a flat spot in the ground with a flame hovering over it. Here's what they don't tell you about the eternal flame. It's gone out at least twice. One time, only weeks after they started it, and when I first read about this, I thought that cannot be true, but I've read multiple accounts that a few weeks after the eternal flame was lit, it was doused by a group of children, 8 to 11 years old, who... They say inadvertently put it out with a bottle of holy water. <laughs> I have children 8 to 11 years old. I can imagine this, okay? So st- that can never happen again. They put an igniter in it that flashes constantly in the stream of gas, but a couple of years later, in a heavy rainstorm, the building that held the fuse box flooded and that was expired and it went out again. What's the point? An eternal flame is hard to maintain. It's hard. In fact, Scripture really only tells us about one flame that burns forever. Mark 9 refers to an unquenchable fire that actually resides in hell. There's also talk of a flame being kept on the altar, but that's in context with a challenge to us to keep that flame burning. The truth of the fire within you is it waxes and wanes, it grows hot sometimes, other times it grows a little cold. Some of you have felt that burning desire to serve God that the Ephesians had when this was written, because you've encountered him, and that's not unique. Many people through history have felt that. Luke twenty four thirty two. they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us when we walked with him and we talked with him? That burning heart, the result of loving Jesus and encountering Him, that feeling that we think will never, ever go away is less of an eternal flame in the way of perfection and more of an eternal flame in the way of JFK's grave. It's a little fragile. And in the sense of the Ephesians, it goes out. The saga of the Ephesians should serve as both inspiration to us and as a dire warning to us. The story's a mixed bag, and the question to us is which part of the Ephesians storyline do we want to plug into? The part of the book of Ephesians where they're on fire, or the part of the book of Revelation where it says they've lost their first love? Ironically, the entire book of Ephesians is talking to us about how we keep that flame alive. Never has a book been written so to the point We live knowing how the story turned out because it wasn't carefully heeded. So it is with great sobriety that I step into the minefield of emotion and misunderstanding that the latter part of the book of Ephesians chapter 5 is. Before we dive in, hear me out. Scripture is as much for us as it is about us. Resist the temptation to take things personally and miss the point and resist the potential of being insulted when you should be instructed, okay? When your dad told you not to touch the stove, was he being controlling? No, he didn't want you to get burned. And there are instructions in this passage that will not set well with some of you, even though you will laugh. But he is telling you, don't touch the stove. When we read things in defense mode, we hear them that way. So let's drop the defenses and let the scripture examine us for a little bit. Rather than read the Bible, let's let the Bible read us. Would you like any more caveats? No, okay, all right. At some point, we're going to just have to read the verse, aren't we? All right. Let's take a look here. What we got? Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What married man wants to preach this? None. None. At least no married man who really loves his wife because this passage has been used to beat women down for centuries. This passage has been used to push women down, to put them in their place, and discourage the fire out of them by men who were really boys on the inside. This verse has been the key verse of the misogynist handbook for so long that we have given the interpretation of it over to them. And I'm here to tell you that if you think this verse makes women second class, you're not reading it correctly. Let me make a prediction. By the time that we are to the end of chapter 5, men are going to have more trepidation about this sermon than women will. Stick with me. Let those on YouTube understand there was great enthusiasm about that part. Okay, you're missing part of this. This is why you should just get up and come. Just get up and come to church, okay? Few passages are more misunderstood than this one. This verse is written in context of a greater mutual submission. You read it all by itself, and it's a little harsh. But if you read it in context... It's not a standalone comment or a standalone demand. Verses before it and after it have impact and meaning. And immediately prior to him telling wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, Paul writes this verses 20 and 21. He tells them, giving thanks and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So wait a minute, before he tells wives to submit to their husbands, he's telling all of us to submit to each other? That's a lot of submitting. You're submitting to me, and I'm submitting to you, and he's submitting to... Like, what's he talking about here? It really is. When he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, he's putting a very fine point on a much greater point that he's made about how we live as the body of Christ in submission to one another. It's like saying... And I'm not saying this, but just for for illustration. It's like saying, please don't eat any more donuts after church. Daniel, don't eat any more donuts. Like it's, it's narrowing the point to Daniel, but it's really to all of us. Is Daniel being targeted? No, I've said it to everybody. He's saying all of you should submit to one another. It's one continuous thought. Submit to one another. And by the way, wives to your husbands. In fact, the earliest manuscripts say it that way. Oh, my wife's it's, it's a softer way of saying it. Per, in fact, the emphasis, more on, emphasis is more on your husbands than anything. In other words, in a culture where women submitted to men everywhere, he's clarifying and he's actually empowering them, saying, women, you don't need to submit to every man. You submit to your husbands. This isn't about a battle of the sexes, all right? In in Christian marriage, like every other Christian relationship, there is mutual submission and there is authority. There's always somebody who leads. What is important about the husband and wife relationship is this. He's using this picture of submission and authority to represent something much greater. With women representing the church... And the husband representing Jesus. Not to beat women down, but as a picture of the church and Jesus that we could see before us. And in placing men in the Christ-like figure in that relationship, he does not give them license to lord it over their women in terror, but he gives them a responsibility to and for their wife. Okay, but what's it mean, submit as to the Lord? Practically, how does that work? Well, what it does not mean, it does not mean that women are inferior to men. Some would say that this argues that women are the lesser sex, or they're all inferior, or they're not made for certain roles. But rather than pigeonholing women in a lesser role, it narrows and it clarifies the scope of submission that is put upon them. Again, put yourself in this culture that it's being written to where women had to submit to everybody. He is saying, submit to your husband, but only to your husband, and in every other arena, you be bold. More than the culture around them, the early church and the church of today was and is full of women who are powerful, strong, independent leaders and still don't have to wrestle with this passage. Men do not have exclusive authority over women even in the church. Read your church history. The real place where the conversation gets off into the weeds, though, is around the phrase, as to the Lord. What does it mean to submit, as to the Lord? Some people would say, well, God is all-powerful, you never question Him. God speaks, you do it. So for a wife to submit, as to the Lord, would mean she does so blindly, with no questions, no protest, and without a voice. That is not the right interpretation of that. As to the Lord does not reflect the extent of submission. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to submit wholly as fully to another human being. You stand before the Lord as an equal and you are responsible for yourself. Every human relationship of submission and leadership involves some limits. Those of you who who, uh, work at a job somewhere, you submit to your employer until they tell you to forge a document. You're no longer liable to, to do that. You don't have to submit to that sort of... Now, you may not have a job, but you are not required to submit to that. You submit to your local church, wherever that is. But if error is taught from the front and you see that and you know that's error, you, you are not blindly held to submit to that. You submit to the government until, insert your red line in the sand there, so, you know, all of you have a different line somewhere. Some of you are like, I'm already there. No, but every human relationship of submission includes a place where, okay, no, I don't submit. Submitting to the Lord does not mean That they have an absolute control, ladies, and you have no say. Somewhere there's a line that would be drawn. It's the nature of submitting to another human being. You're in submission, but you're not without conscience. You're not without a voice. You're not without responsibility for yourself. If you submit to another person like you would submit to the Lord in fullness, that takes all responsibility for your own actions off of yourself, and that's not biblical. The phrase, as to the Lord, doesn't refer to the extent of submission. But there's another way it can be misinterpreted as well. As to the Lord does not put the wife in the driver's seat as the arbitrator of God's will. Some people say, well, I'll submit to him as to the Lord, meaning as long as he does what God wants, I'll submit. And who's deciding if he's doing what God wants? She is. So now she's deciding to stay in the back seat, but somehow she's got the steering wheel, okay? Like, like I will follow you to the ends of the earth, but I will decide which ends of the earth we're going to. That's not submitting. That's manipulating using peace as a carrot and disrespect as a stick. And that's not what it's talking about there. Remarkably quiet, for those of you that are on YouTube, I don't know if it's quiet in your home, it's quiet here. This is hard, guys, and I understand it is, but we got to wrestle with it. Ladies, and I'll explain more why in a minute, maybe the why will make this a little more palatable. But there are times, not over moral issues, okay, but there are times when you will have a pretty good hunch he's wrong, And the godly thing would be to submit. Because of what it would show others. And we'll talk about this in a minute. What does it mean to submit to the Lord? How does that refer to you? One commentary said it this way, and I tried like crazy to phrase it in a better way, and I just couldn't. So we're just going to flat out read it. As to the Lord does not define the extent of a woman's submission or the limit of a wife's submission... It defines the motive of the wife's submission. All right, you there with the clown shoes, I I know you're probably wrong about this, but I'm going to submit because I actually love Jesus, and I'm going to submit to him, and I'm going to submit to you as a demonstration of submitting to him. Every woman, every man, everyone at some point limits their own will or submits to some situation and goes beyond the call of duty within their own station of life because they're doing it for the Lord. Everybody does. Not for the person that you're serving or that you're submitting to, but just because it pleases Jesus. In fact, you already understand this and you've done this on a regular basis. You all, at some time, deny yourself or serve someone with the idea that I'm not doing this for you, I'm doing it for Jesus. It doesn't put that person above you, it puts you in right relationship with your Savior. Decades ago, a reporter went to write an article for Life magazine and interview Mother Teresa. Now, not many people get to interview Mother Teresa, so there's not a real protocol in how this goes and he wasn't exactly sure what to expect but he assumed they would meet somewhere in an office or a study and he gets to interview Mother Teresa and they say oh she's down this hall they he walks down the hall he comes around the corner and he finds Mother Teresa on her hands and knees cleaning up where a child has just vomited he's thinking this is not the interview I expected and he's, he's gagging, he's just really struggling with it, and she's mopping it up and he says, I wouldn't do that for a thousand dollars. Mother Teresa looks up at him and said, neither would I, I'm doing this for Jesus. Ladies, it doesn't matter if he's right, you're really not even doing this for him. Doesn't mean you can have no voice or that you can't challenge, but at the end of the day, you're not letting your case rest because of him You're letting your case rest because of Jesus. When you submit as to the Lord, you're serving Jesus. How many of you would like to just move on to the next verse? Personally, I would. Okay. Ephesians 5, 23 and 24, because it gets a little dicier here. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also the wives should submit everything to their husbands. Mutual submission, our mutual submission one to another, a wife to her husband is not blind and it's not without reservation. It's not dangled over the fire of unto the Lord or or I'm out of here, buddy. It's not that. It is an act of service that in its clearest and most perfect state is a picture to the world of the church looking to Jesus for leadership. And it takes humility but we all knew that that was on the docket when we signed up to follow Jesus, male or female. In this case, Paul puts the onus of demonstrating submission on wives, but as you'll see, he lays another significant role on husbands that if they will embrace, will take a lot of sacrifice on their parts. If we isolate the wives submit to your husbands from the entire narrative, and we make a club out of that verse that encourages women to lord it over their, or husbands to lord it over their wives, and it'll build resentment among women who makes this, understand the feeling that the whole load is on them. That's not true. Looking at the whole passage gives a very different perspective, because the headship that Paul speaks to about men and women is not the kind of leadership that most of us have grown up seeing in business in work or even in the church the sort of leadership that most of us have seen will actually destroy a marriage not construct it the leadership of the world and the leadership of Jesus are very very different and husbands what you're called to emulate is not the CEO of your home. It's to represent Jesus to your family. Some men, taking on the world's view of leadership, wreck their marriages rather than portray the relationship of Jesus and the church. And then when it blows up and the friends go, what are you doing? They're like, I was trying to lead. Yeah, you're trying to lead like the rest of the world leads. And Jesus even told us that doesn't work. The world's leadership says, I am your head, so you take orders from me, and you must do whatever I say. Christ-like leadership says, I am your head, so I will care for you, and I will serve you. The world's leadership says, you've got to submit to me, so here are things that I want you to do. Christ-like leadership says, you submit to me, and so I am accountable and responsible before the Lord." And so I've got to care and serve for you. Men, this is not about getting your way because she's going to submit. This is about giving your life so that when your wife, who is precious before the eyes of the Lord, when she has a need, it is fulfilled before your needs are. Before your needs are. That requires a level of maturity and sacrifice that just honestly a lot of us are not willing to rise up to because we've never seen it modeled and we're struggling to figure it out for ourselves. How do we lead by sacrifice? You know what's the best part about preaching straight through a book of the Bible? You can't skip the hard parts. You just can't. So let me just tell you the sobriety that I'm approaching this with, okay? Because I am a man preaching to myself with his wife in the room in a body of people small enough that most of you know us. And most of my sobriety and anxiousness about diving into this passage have not been the stuff we've covered already. It's the stuff to cover. Because my inward fear, which is about to come, my very public fear, is that I don't always do those verses like I should. And there's somebody in the room who'd be totally justified at saying it's true. I actually told the Lord, I told Kelsey this too earlier this week, I'm concerned about this. Like I'm anxious about this because I don't want to preach something that I haven't mastered. And as I was praying about that, has the Lord ever laughed at you? I said, Randy, Randy, you're going to preach what you've mastered, what can you possibly preach? <laughs> like every week, it's something you're working on. So I'm not preaching my expertise here. And I only say that to save you from shouting it out. I'm preaching my Bible, and I'm putting my try on the table next to yours, okay? Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. The expectation of submission that is directed towards the wife is met with an expectation of Christ-likeness and Christ-like leadership placed on the husband for his bride. And it's given in the context of loving her. And Paul uses a word for love in that place very intentionally. Most of you understand this. There are three words at least for love in the language here. There's eros, philia, and agape. Eros is a physical attraction. It is driven by desire. Okay? It is most often connected to the idea of sexuality, of I want that. Then there is philia which is a a love of people like a brotherly-like love from which we get the name of the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's driven by common interest. You find somebody and and they like doing the things you do and all of a sudden, wow, we're friends and I I have an affection for you. And then there is agape love, which is a wholehearted, committed love, which is not driven by desire or mutual affection for something. It is driven primarily by the mind by the decision to love and the will to do so. Eros is a feeling. Philia is an interest. Agape is a decision. And Paul is telling us, men decide to love your wives. For the times when eros and desire wanes, for the times when philia or uh, affiliation falls by the wayside. Somebody told me one time, you know, we just we just drifted apart did you change your mind because agape is a decision of the mind eros is an easy sell to men okay as young adults most undisciplined men are not much more than eros and a debit card like that's you know that's, they're just they're full of that philia develops over time some of you have found yourself in relationship with people maybe at work or uh, you just all of a sudden you're around these people and you just have a a heart for them you're like wow i didn't even think i'd like that person now you know I, i care about them in a brotherly way but agape is the calling placed on husbands for their wives to decide to love her no matter what including whether or not she submits Have you made that decision no matter what? Women are told to submit to their husbands, but husbands are told to love their wives whether they submit or they don't. And you're like, well, I don't see it that way. Well, at what point did you tear Hosea out of your Bible? Because Hosea, hears the word of the Lord, makes a decision and pursues a woman his entire life as she rejects him. Because it's a demonstration of agape. Paul uses two pictures to kind of describe uh, a demonstration of agape, what this looks like. Because you're like, I want to make the decision. Okay, if you made the decision, this is where it goes. First of all, it is sacrificial. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, to love your lives is to lay down some of your desires and even rights to sacrifice for her. We are to approach our wives with the same spirit that Jesus approached the church, full of sacrifice, in full view of all of her failings. You're like, you want me to sacrifice for her? Well, let me tell you the whole story. No, don't go there. Make the decision and make the sacrifice. And guys, your interests come behind hers. Your hobbies come behind her desires. got quiet again. I'm sorry. Your fulfillment comes behind hers. It's sacrifice. Now, there was a t- This was going to be a story about golf, but I don't play golf, and so it seemed like I'd be picking on you guys, okay? But there was a time when uh, I had a, uh, a radio show in Washington, D.C. I was on the air in D.C., from here and uh, the economic model of talk radio is really wonky and you really have to be able to sell advertising so I was loving doing this show but uh, I, it was just impossible to try and sell any advertising but it was taking a lot of time a lot of time and I would go to bed reading things and wake up early in the morning because I was on the it was a drive time in the morning in Washington DC which is an hour earlier here and it was it was kind of ruling our lives a little bit. And my wife very graciously said, this is becoming a very expensive hobby. And I realized that it, she was right. It was, wasn't costing time. It was costing time, not money. But it was taking time away from being attentive to my family because I like to do it. Now it could also be about golf. What is it that you are doing, guys, that takes you out of the picture for hours and hours and hours and hours just because it's really fulfilling? Are you meeting her needs first? That's what it means to sacrifice. I understand this would be more comfortable were it not so practical. But it just is. Guys, her needs come first. That's what it means to be sacrificial. What what makes the church worth? the sacrifice that Jesus made. Ever just get a good look at the church? It's pretty goofy. It really is. Why would Jesus say that is worth my life? This is the key. The church is worth the sacrifice because he decided it was worth the sacrifice. He actually gives worth to the church by his sacrifice. Men, by sacrificing your desires and your resources for your wife you actually increase her value. And if some of you feel like you're not getting your investment worth, I would encourage you to check if you're really making the full investment or not. You love her, and her value increases even in your own eyes. But that love is a decision. Guys, you come second to her not just second through the door, but in her area of needs and not even just the ones that you share. When you sacrifice for her, you start to look like Jesus. When you struggle with her, you start to look like the devil himself. He uses a picture of sacrifice, but then he also uses a picture of cleansing. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now we've talked about the different connotations of the word of God, the idea of logos and rhema. Logos being the written word. Rhema being the spoken word. And he is saying here, you wash her with the spoken word. God, if you want to... Guys, if you want a wife that reflects Jesus more than she will without you, then your portion is to speak the words of Jesus over her. And to proclaim the promises of God in her life and to call out God's thoughts about her in her presence. Some of you are going, I just, you know, I'm not a talker. I am a talker, and I still mess this up. Okay? I have no problem generating words. But if I find I am not conscious of this idea of washing my wife with the spoken word, I can generate a whole flurry of words that are not helpful. My lack is not in saying nothing. It's saying nothing that guides her to a more vibrant walk with Jesus. That's the struggle. You're like, this is hard to hear from my pastor. If you want a perfect pastor, I can make recommendations. They're not perfect either, but they'll let you believe it. And here's where I struggle. Kelsey will present me with a situation that she's struggling with, doesn't know what to do with, and before she is done describing it, I already know what the quick answer is, and I can barely wait for her to finish. Sometimes I don't even wait. Her greatest need in those times is not my advice. she needs the words that the Lord would speak over her. She needs validated and encouraged and I am I, this is where i'm wrestling going i 've got to quit just giving advice and start talking about the words of Jesus over my bride. what's the husband's motivation here in outside agape love, making the decision in caring for his wife because when he cares for her she in turn loves him in a way that she could not possibly any other way because she begins to reflect the church who is being led by someone from a Christ-like perspective Ephesians 5.27 says so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now Paul has stepped out of the realm here of speaking about physical marriage and he's talking about Jesus alone and how he speaks over his bride and all of her failings and all of her foibles, she's presented here as not having any spot or wrinkle. She has become what nobody thought she could become, but nobody has loved her like that before. This dance of submission and responsibility is not an act unto itself. It is a flawed demonstration of a perfect happening that is really happening in real time in spiritual worlds. It is our stepping into a role that as badly as we may both play it points to Jesus and his bride. And with that point, Paul returns to talking about husbands and wives, but he no longer separates the entities. Get this, verses 28 to 30. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. they become one now. But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. He said, guys, men and women were members of his body. He brings us together there. I love how Paul intentionally draws them back onto level ground and summarizes and says, we're all members of the body of Christ. He accentuates that even though some have roles to submit and others have roles to lead, at the end of the day, they partner together. And that word partner doesn't even, doesn't even fit it well because they don't just partner, they actually become one. Ephesians 5.31 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, For those of you that have young people in your house that are about to get married, this is problematic for you. Because you think of it as, oh, I'm gaining a daughter or I'm gaining a son. Yes and no. Yes, there's a new person in your world, but those two become one and they're their own family. And if you really want to bless them, let them be that, give them some space. Some of you are struggling because mom and dad hadn't figured that out. And you need to realize, you're like, I've been married 10 years, I'm still fighting this battle with my parents. You need to realize that you and your spouse are one and there is no more room for anybody else in that. It's a picture of man and woman coming together and standing as one on equal terms before Jesus and all being a part of the body. A new entity requires a new allegiance. And that allegiance is not to your family of birth. It's to your spouse, both male and female. Jesus loves his bride. Like he really, really loves his bride. He sees her for what she's worth. And what she can be. He sees her in her mess. But he gives everything for her. I want to read one verse and then just close he says at the end of this passage the mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church however let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband it ties it all up in a bow and it says hey love her the way Jesus loves the church And she, in turn, will love you back. If we can get this, guys, do you understand what a picture we are to the world that does not live this way? This is not about beating women over the stick, submit, submit, submit. It's not about that at all. It's about saying, can we serve as a picture of the bride of Christ and a Savior in a way that makes following Jesus as appealing as it really is? Stand with me if you would. I want to ask if Danny would just come. We'll just, yeah, just bring Danny. I want to take just a minute and pray over you. We're not going to go long tonight, but just a moment. Because I'm telling you, there's a lot to wrestle with here. Some of you are dreading conversations on the way home. It is worth the struggle to get this right. Both in your marriage and in your walk before the Lord so father we come to you and we say thank you for this passage thank you for the challenge of it thank you for the reality of it that we stand before you Jesus men and women as complete equals in the body of Christ and the road to that equality contains roles that we both chafe at a little bit. So Father, for women in the room that are wrestling with this, I pray that they would serve and bless their husband as to the Lord. That if they would say, I'm having a hard time serving him, but I can do this for Jesus, that you would bless that reach on their part. And for men who struggle with their own failings of leadership, God, we ask that you would release them from condemnation and you would help them step into the role that you have given them to care and provide and protect their wives. Lord, for those in the room who are not married, we ask that they would see the picture of what it means to be a bride of Christ and submit to Him and live under His leadership. At the end of the day, we all want the same thing, Jesus. We want Your leadership over our lives. And if we can reflect that to others, God, let it be. Father, I pray You would bless the Bridge family. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Sandwich Sunday this afternoon. Be there.